sitting in a house overlooking Vaux, the most, I think, wonderful picture window, and sitting with me is, and the subject of Shetland Voices this time is journalist um, and broadcaster Jane Stutz. So, Jane, welcome back to Shetland. Very good to see you here, and so will. I suppose what we'll do with this is start how we, A, start with Shetland Voices, is um, if you can tell me a pretty bit about your background, like where you were born, and a pretty bit about your family, and sort of how you grew up. So if we just start, start from the very beginning. I was born in the Gilbert Bain, as a lot of us were, and I was flown back to Fair Isle a few days old by Eddie Watt. Uh, back to Setter, which was the croft that we had at the time. I was the first uh, first bairn of Cathy and Michael. And my mum came from Surrey. She'd <laughs> gotten a bit lost. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she was one of the folk that uh, came to work at the hostel. So a lot of uh, kind of eccentric and interesting folk that ended up in Fair Isle. And I'm one of those kind of strange products of <laughs> Fair Isle and Seath. Yeah, uh, so we were there, <coughs> went away, came back. I was mostly grew up in Fair Isle and always wanted to be there. That was just home. My granny was there, my Uncle Kenny, and, and that was just everything. Kind of, it was my pretty world that I love so much and still love. But we went to Bressa when I was about, well, a pretty spell in Yell and then Bressa. So when I was at high school, we were at Bressa. And then in the tune a bit, it's a long story, <laughs> complicated story. I've had a lot of addresses, put it this way. I think I'm on, I'm on 41 and I'm 33, so... But 41 addresses yeah, yeah. and age 33. Yeah, yeah, and I can <laughs> blame incredible. some of that on my parents yeah. and some of that's me. <laughs> yeah, so when I was 17, I went to New Zealand to stay with Liam and Leslie, and Liam is my uncle in Fair Isle's son. He's a big grown-up strapping lad now and he's coming over soon, so we're excited to see them. And I went there and gallivanted a bit and worked a bit. So you've done a fair bit of travelling in your time. Um, how about <clears throat> going back again to school? What was education like for you? Well, Fair Isle School was just fantastic. We were outside a lot of the time, playing rounders a lot of the time. We had Ruth and she was just the best teacher. I just loved her. It was a very happy school to be in, yeah. We left Fair Isle before I would have been going to the, the big school and I can't say I enjoyed my time at the Anderson uh, at all. Difficult? Yes, difficult. It was just, there was a lot of chaos. I remember being a lot of chaos in classrooms. It was kind of this attitude of like, if you actually wanted to learn, you were going to get bullied for that. You would stand out. And again, I was bullied for a lot of different things. <laughs> and that was one of them, was being keen to learn. I mean, heaven forfend that you, <laughs> that you want to learn things. When I was about 16, I was kind of, I was skiving quite a lot, Jane. I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe, you know, nipping in the back of the sheds and smoking and other things that you shouldn't be doing when you're that age. And I really had kind of given up on this idea of, like, school getting me somewhere. And, and then Marion Ockenden had this chance to study Russian. And it was like an extra class. And, and I thought, well, that's 
interesting because I'd done German and French, but I, I never liked, I never liked them at all, especially French. I just you know it's illogical to me. I just objected to it. But Russian, it was like honestly, it was like I spoke it in a past life if I believed in that, and and maybe it's true. Who knows? We don't know. It just fitted my mouth better, <laughs> if that makes sense. And I loved the grammar. I loved it. And I loved the whole thing of it, like the sound of the words and the, the poetry of it, the way that it kind of, the words all link together. It's just, it's just amazing. And Marion Ockenden was such a good teacher because she could just see that I had like a lot of potential, but I was kind of just needed a bit of guidance. I was a very angry teenager, you know, as there with my Linkin Park hoodie and like <laughs> my fags and just, you know, being a bit of a nightmare. I just really wanted to work hard for her because she treated me with respect and had time for me and she somehow took us to St Petersburg and I mean this was just can you imagine at that age I hadn't really traveled much at all and it was just it was just unbelievable it just blew my mind do you know and and I was there and I thought right I'm coming back here I'm coming back here I'm gonna pass my exams and go to university and come back to Russia and that's going to be the thing that I do which you did. <laughs> and, and we will get to that because that's going to be a big part of this story of your, your life and where you're at now. But how did you get there, I suppose, is the next question. Did you go to university? Yeah, kind of roundabout ways, you know. So I, I went to New Zealand for a year and then I came back. Uh, I went to Edinburgh University because I had Russian. That was kind of the main reason. And I did Russian and linguistics. And I mean, one of the fantastic things about the Scottish education system is that you can change so much, especially in your first two years. Can you can it's not you're not forced in a certain route. So I studied loads of different things, and I again I was <laughs> it's almost embarrassing how earnest I was, and still am to be honest. But you know, like I was just wandering around the library, picking out books and reading them, and just absorbing all of this knowledge, you know, and that just made me so happy. I did, I did drop out for a year and lived in Pilton. And <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a happy year, actually. Yeah, learn how to get your food for the for the skips because there was a lot chucked away in those days and did a lot of activism and had a good time. But yeah, I went back to university. And then, you know, your, your year abroad, turns out it was going to cost like £1,500. They don't do that anymore. But uh, yeah, to go to Perm. And I was, so, I was so excited. I was all ready and my boyfriend was going to come with me and I... And, and then they this, they came out with this and I said, well, I don't have it, you know, like I don't have that at all. You know, you dream of having that. And they said, well, you get some of it back at the end. And I said, yes, I don't I don't have the money. And I mind, they do, they said, the director of study said, we've never had this problem before. Really? Yeah. And I thought, yeah, I bet you haven't. So it was kind of put to me that we well, might as well just change your degree. And that was really, really galling because, again, the, my classmates went to Perm for the year and they worked with the Human Rights Memorial Organisation, which has now been shut down or liquidated, as they like to say in Russia. And they went on to have careers in Russia and be speaking Russian and all the things I kind of wanted to do. And I was, that was that was a shame, you know. Um, maybe I could have found a way around it if I'd been less... I just gave up too easily. I was like, well, that's just how things are. Things are unfair. Okay. So I did sociology, which I loved, and is a great degree for a, for anybody, but especially for a reporter. It really is the whole breadth of kind of human endeavour, <laughs> and I did I did well. And uh, but yeah, I worked in Sandy Bell's bar for many years, on and off. 
the famous Edinburgh hostelry for folk musicians mainly. Yeah, and Shetlanders. So and I, Shetlanders, I didn't yeah. like I never count that when I was handed my CV and I was just like, oh, this place is all right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I've worked an awful lot in university because I didn't have any money and the SAS grant doesn't really cover your costs then. I'm sure it doesn't now. And Edinburgh is an expensive place to, to live. So it wasn't the easiest time and I was kind of stressed and found it difficult to write essays because I didn't have the confidence in myself to, to do that. But I was good at it, you know, and I got good at it and I learned and it gets easier. Were you still angry at the world? <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Furious. <laughs> the more that I found out about the world, the angrier I was, Jane, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I was doing a lot of activism at the time. I was involved in kind of climate camp and a lot of the stuff to stop us getting to this dangerous tipping point that we're now at. It didn't work. We just got beaten up by the police and harassed a lot, but we tried. You know, we tried. Yeah, I was, do I was doing a lot of that stuff. Oh, it seems like an awful long time ago now. To be honest. So, it, it so what years would this have been? I graduated in 2012 and I was still completely on the Russia thing. So I had it all set up to go to Izhevsk in the Urals and I had my Priglashenia, which is a bit of paper that you get from the government saying you can come to Russia and you can get your visa. And I'd saved up and up and up and bought this big black um, Didrikson's coat, you know, I've still got it. It was great when I was in Russia. <laughs> and then mum got poorly and uh, very, very, very belatedly diagnosed with cancer after insisting that she had it for many doctor's visits and being completely ignored and dismissed. And so that had been kind of lurking in the background and we'd been hoping it wasn't that and then it was looking like it was. So I said, well, I'll, I'll come back and I didn't go to Izhevsk. And I mean, that did turn out to be a very sad time for you. Hell. Mm-hmm. It's hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's actually terrible what you can get used to because you'll get used to things that are so bad and, like, every day is so bad and you think, well, it can't be worse. And then it is, but you just keep on, like, making the soup and getting taking the dog for a walk and you just, you just plod on, even though, like, part of you is just snapping because it's so... It's so grim and... To watch somebody die in pain and fear over such a long period, like months and months and months of that. You can fuck say these things, I think it's to make themselves feel better as much as you, but they, they say, oh, she was strong to the end. I mean, she wasn't, and you wouldn't be, you know, in that kind of pain and fear. You wouldn't be, often. I find the whole kind of survivor's chat and the kind of language that we use about this stuff really... I hate it, I hate it, like... Because somebody didn't survive, it wasn't because they weren't strong enough, it was because, Ken, they had a disease that killed them. <laughs> so what age was your mum? She was no age at all, she was uh, 50. And I was 24, and Ken, Freya was just 12, 13, I mean, yeah. And did you take on that responsibility, kind of looking after your mum and, and Freya? Yeah. Of course, of course, you you do, don't you? Yeah, I mean, Freya's so much younger than me, so you kind of have this idea that you can, like with pretty ones, you can protect them for bad things in the world. It's a, it's a child's idea in itself, isn't it? Like, as if one person can do that, but of course you think that, and then the worst thing ever happens and you can't do anything. Mm-hmm. I'd been there for a few months, and then <laughs> we were kind of pretending that she was getting better. Uh, and I went to Fair Isle to work at the OBS. 
it's about April in that year. I think partly because I just couldn't anymore. I was dissociating, kind of, when you're like up above your head and just part of me was just zoning out because I, I just couldn't anymore. So I went to Fair Isle and, uh, and, and Lisa was dying. And Lisa was such a figure for me, Lisa Sinclair. She was such a friend and a mentor and kind of taught me to play the flute and taught me so much. And it just seemed unbelievable. So that was a very, very hard summer. She died a month after Mum, about a month and six weeks. And you just kind of, you're just walking around in a unreality, you know. Just, yeah, checking out of your head, just getting... And I had looking after the bairns and that kind of... And that kept me a pretty bit sane. The loveliest bairns. <laughs> yeah, and Grace and Freya. And that really helped, you know, to be in that family. It was hellish and I was I was too young to deal with all that and understand it all. Did you have any help afterwards, like processing that? Or did you just have to deal with it yourself? Or did you want to deal with it yourself? No, it took me a long time to deal with it. You never actually do, obviously, but you can you can deal with it a pretty bit. No, I mean, because there's such silence, I think, in this society. We don't have, like, the tradition where, kind of in other cultures, like, it's six months at a year, we'll all kind of get together and remember the person. Like, we just don't do that at all. And you can just go for a long time. Like, nobody actually wants to speak about them because it's painful and it's mm-hmm. hard. And part of me wanted to scream, kind of, what? Come on, like... We've lost these two unbelievable women that we all needed so badly, like the chasm that they left, not just in their families, but like their communities, is just unfillable. It's impossible to fill. Yeah, it can get very frustrating for me personally. I think we don't talk about death enough and we we talk in these kind of cliches and like I said, this kind of, oh, and she was strong and survivors and not survivors and and it's, it's difficult, it makes it harder. So how did you manage to go forward in life? Um, I made myself very, very busy. I'd gotten funding during this time to go back to uni, to go back to Edinburgh and do a master's programme and a PhD. So I got under Research Council funding, which is like a great programme. <laughs> it lasted about six months and I had to admit that I, I couldn't, and the, the burden of the, the coursework and the and I was doing statistics, which is really not me, Jane, you know. My dream had always been to bide like in the old town, like near the castle and oh, this skyline. I just love the old town of Edinburgh, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And I got this flat and it was hell because I didn't, it was so noisy. There's just people screaming outside in nightclubs for like the whole time. And yeah, I was really not well, so I kind of left after six months and ended up, yeah, back home. And then I Moved around a bit and worked at the lighthouse and worked at the the Benthic lab at Scala, picking the pretty guys at the lab dishes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whew, yeah. So a lot of moving about. And, and probably you're still processing your grief at this time as well. I mean, barely. Mm-hmm. Barely, to be honest. Just keeping busy and yeah, being very angry. I think anger is like, often it's the only thing that we allow ourselves to feel and it's kind of a proxy for like a lot of stuff a lot of grief and a lot of sadness and a lot of things that we just can't express so we just get really mad (laughs) yeah so you had a variety of jobs when you came back home how long did that last for 
oh, six months or so, I suppose. I loved working at Sombra Head because I could, <laughs> because I could speak to the birds all day and uh, it makes it sound like I was skiving. It was a pity, but and I could, when the Good Shepherd was going past, then I could shout down and shout, hi, Uncle Kenny, and he would wave back. <laughs> <laughs> and all the tourists just loved this, you know, <laughs> you can imagine. Um, it was the time of the referendum, so that was all kicking off, and I was quite involved in that, trying to, I, you know, genuinely wanted to bring folk together and bring women together who had different opinions on it for like a debate that didn't involve men shouting and pointing their big fingers at each other. We found that once you removed the men, <laughs> or that they could come but just not dominate the whole thing again, the tone was a lot better, and you'd really get into some better discussions. So I did that pretty bit with uh, with Jean Arkett and some others. And then I went to Glasgow in July that year to be a bit nearer the action, I suppose. And that was a very hard time because I was stony broke. I mean, like, scary broke. Again. And I mind just walking for hours and hours and hours and hours around Glasgow, blisters on my feet, like handing in my CVs to all these pubs and just not getting any work and thinking, like, there's not much lentils left in the cupboard, you know. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was tricky. But it was a very exciting time to be in Glasgow. And I was doing a lot of campaigning with, like, the... Like the radical independence campaign and and the yes campaign and um, it was it was exciting because again in a country where there's not a huge amount of political engagement suddenly you're like in a bus stop and everyone's like what do you think about the currency and do you know and like young folk were getting involved and that was fantastic and it was a real feeling of like there might be a chance to actually change something which didn't happen <laughs> but you know it changed the country for better I think that debate. Right on, on the back of the, the referendum, having worked so hard, how did that feel when when it was not a yes, it was a no? It was very sad. I kind of knew that it was going to be. Did you? Yeah, 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 yeah. There was so much kind of hype and like you can get carried away with it, but I was knocking on all the doors in Rutherglen and it was just all these old ladies whose invariably kind of husband had died too young and he'd had a hard job and a hard life and they felt... Life had not been good to them and they felt they were scared and they thought things were going to get worse and they were reading certain newspapers and watching certain TV and that was suggesting to them they would lose their pension and they were scared and they'd already voted again postal and there were so many of them and I thought, yeah, okay. So what happened after that? Did you still feel like you could be politically active or did it just knock the stuffing out of you? No, it was, I mean, I got very involved in land reform. You know, independence for me, it's it's not for the flag and it's not... I don't care which flag is flying. It was for pragmatic means, so that we have some chance of making things better. Do you know? And I just couldn't see that chance coming from Westminster. And one of the big things was land reform, because land is everything. It's like housing, it's how we get our food and who gets to live where and who gets to control things or not. And and then we had this big land reform campaign. And that was great, it was very exciting. And pushed the SNP to the left, I think, still. Even if they didn't really deliver on, on that in the when it came to the bill. So yeah, I was still I was still involved in things, and life wasn't that easy at that point. I'd say. How were you surviving if if it was so hard for you financially? Was did you get paid for that? No, no. I I worked in pubs. Mm-hmm. I worked in the Islet Inn. Yeah, it was hard trying to ne- negotiate the UK benefits system, which is not easy for anybody. Yeah, and then I was offered a job with uh, this Thirty Eight Degrees campaigning group. Because basically, during the referendum, they'd had some petition and it had a lot. It was about Scottish independence, and they'd suddenly gained all these members, you know, people who signed up. 
um, in Scotland and they were like, oh, we don't know anything about Scotland. Let's let's find one of those. <laughs> so I ended up working for them, which is like a, a proper job, you know, and I had to go to London and stay there sometimes, which I hated, obviously. It was interesting, but I left to do more land reform stuff and be broke again. I was actually starting to write a lot more and I was enjoying the writing more as like anything else. And I'd always wanted to do that again. I'd always wanted to be a journalist since... Since I was in school, you know, and learning Russian and reading about Anna Politkovskaya, who was a fantastic journalist, investigative journalist, who reported on stuff in Chechnya, knew that it would get her killed, did it anyway, was shot in 2006. And she was a huge inspiration for me. Again, I was kind of edging more towards journalism at that point, yeah. We want to speak a lot about your time in Russia and Ukraine, but I want to touch on your journalism career that brought you there. So let's have a sort of a, a round up of that. Oh. And how you got there, if it's, that's possible. Yeah, it's kind of... It's far too difficult to get into that industry without money. You know, we used to have this kind of system of, like, you would you do your training on a local paper, and that's pretty accessible to anybody. They can kind of get a fit in the door that way. And that's the best training ever, you know. But now it's much more a bit like unpaid internships and all this kind of stuff that just excludes so many people. Like, no, if you can go to London and work for free, you know, it's just impossible. So I was I was <laughs> lucky in the sense that I, I managed to kind of do it the old fashioned way eventually. But oh, it was it was such an endless struggle, to be honest. Like I, I was working at Common Space as my first job, untrained as a, as a reporter. And this was a very naive and, in my view now, stupid idea that you could replace someone's all the media with just like this one small team of very, very badly paid people that would just... Re so we would come in really early in the morning, rewrite the days, the other stories from other newspapers, and then we're like, then we were expected to do our own investigations and the features and political profiles. And, you know, you just worked to the absolute bone for almost no money at all like not enough to live on in Glasgow <laughs> but all of us are like oh we're so lucky to be doing this you know <laughs> yeah we did eventually try and like unionize it and, and yeah. get a bit annoyed but um and I I really enjoyed particularly doing investigations and digging into stuff you know and I was really interested in policing questions about policing and how how the police is run in, in Scotland and there was a lot of questions at that time I ended up at a I'd done a lot of like campaigning around asylum and refugee issues in the past in, in Glasgow, trying to stop people getting deported, basically. And there was a woman with her young son. They had taken her in a dawn raid and injured her ankle. And dawn raids aren't supposed to happen in Scotland, but they do. Uh, and they were being held at the detention centre. So I went down and there was no other journalist there, but there's a big crowd. And they, it went on for a long time and they used dogs to break it up and they injured people and I was there kind of covering it all and doing video and reporting on it and that was very very satisfying to be able to cover that and you know properly in depth so stuff like that but that was all in my own time you know and I knew that I, I enjoyed doing this kind of stuff but I also felt strongly that journalists should be trained if I was going to ask somebody to trust me as a source then I should know the ins and outs I should know my legal stuff I think training is important I think it's a vocation it's not just like you're a blogger and then oh you're a journalist so, but how to do this, you know, because like, fuck, go and do an MA, which is like ten, like £10,000. I mean, it's just bonkers, isn't it? Like, amount of money for this stuff. And as ever, I had no money. So I thought, well, I'll try and apply for funding. Went to Liverpool City College, which is the cheapest way to do your journalism training. Fast track, six months, all crammed in, get to 100 words a minute shorthand, do your law, boof, done. And I got that funded just 
although I had to work in a bar like a lot. And, yeah. and Liverpool is fantastic. I mean, what a city. What an amazing city. Beautiful, full of really funny people, good crack, warm and friendly. Yeah, I loved it. Oh, didn't realise you did that. Um, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. But that would have been English media law then. Well, they did let me sit the Scottish one. Did they? Yeah, yeah, yeah they were good about that. And as a in between two exams, I did an interview over Skype for a, a job as a reporter at the Stranraer and Wigginshire Free Press and got it. And so, you know, freshly minted off I went to this town that I had never been to before, knew nothing about, knew nobody, <laughs> and started on the newspaper there. So that was kind of the apprenticeship, I suppose, into journalism, as far as print is concerned. Yeah, I learned so much there. Like from the first minute I was out, you know, using my shorthand, taking stuff down. And I had the benefit of a really, really good editor, Alan Hall. He's sadly not in journalism now. He's gone to PR like so many people do. He had your back. And he expected a lot. Like if you filed copy and there was a mistake in it, he'd be right on you. And I, I never did that. I did that once and I never did it again because he got so mad. Always a clean copy, you know. <laughs> but no, he had your back. If, if, if somebody said, oh, I don't, I don't believe this. And he'd say, well, you know, my reporter wrote that, so I believe her. And he would go and deal with them. And that was great. I learned so much that. And we had a magazine as well. And so I was writing for the magazine and doing these great long features, like being sent out to, I don't know, interview somebody about astrology. And I'd come back with like 10,000 words and he'd say, Jen, God, <laughs> calm it, dude. So, yeah, I, I, loved, I loved the work. It was very, very hard. I mean, we were sometimes, when he was off, it would just be me and you and putting, putting together and subbing and writing the entirety of a 40-page tall paper. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was bonkers. But one of the last papers, I think, they don't do this anymore, to print on site, like the Shetland Times. I mean, there's a lot they a lot in common with those papers. And, and so the printing press was downstairs, and you'd feel it like on a Wednesday morning, you know, you'd manage to just get everything done, and it, the whole building would start shaking, and there'd be people queuing outside, and so you'd see them, like, holding the paper still warm, and be like, I did, I did that, I did that. <laughs> so that kind of made it all worth it, you know? And, and it was a big patch, and I had to get a car, I had no money and I'd only just passed my test because that costs a lot of money as well. Just everything is difficult. And I got this terrible heap of <clears throat> from a, a farm, like this really dangerously decrepit old golf that I called Gibby. And <laughs> <laughs> so, Should I ask why or <laughs> does that remain unknowable? Well, we have this thing about always naming the cars. You know, there was Vicky the Volvo. We all mind Vicky the Volvo. <laughs> Went off the banks. It was a sad day. No, I mean, he just... He, he rem- I looked at him and I thought, well, that's a gibby. So, then, yeah, I would pootle around uh, the whole of Wigtonshire, which was a big patch, driving miles and miles and miles to some, like, community council meeting in some cold hall and sit there for three hours and they talk about parking zones. And you write it all down and you put it in the paper and you're dutiful about this and... Yeah. And how long were you there for? A year. And then I got a job at the BBC. Mm-hmm. In uh, in Glasgow on the nine, which I think was a surprise to anybody who knows me <laughs> that they hired me. <laughs> I think they were looking to, you know, shake things up a bit when they started the nine, and yeah, hire some maybe slightly more unusual folk. <laughs> I could say that. So yeah, I moved there and got a pretty flat in York Hill. What made you apply for it? What was the interest for your side? Oh, I was applying for a lot at that point. I was still applying for everything I could to do with Russia. There had been the Moscow Times, which is the kind of stepping stone for all the foreign journalists, but that 
you know, they changed ownership and they weren't taking anybody. You know, when I look, I was looking back the other day at my diaries and that whole time I was just applying for everything. I got shortlisted or longlisted for the Financial Times scholarship, which was like you would work all over the world and that would have been, and I, you know, like a Channel 4 dispatches investigation. So I was applying and applying and applying. And I guess, yeah, the nine was one of the things that, that came mm-hmm. good in the end. Yeah. Uh, it's not like I was particularly drawn to TV. Yeah. Don't really watch it that much, to be honest. <laughs> and <laughs> how long were you there? Uh, too long? Too long. Uh-huh. Was not happy? No. No. Oh, no. Because I was sitting behind the desk. You know, it was TV production. You're just mm-hmm. a hamster on a wheel. Um, it's very, very stressful. You're getting to bed very late at night. It's not good for your kind of life. Okay. I mean, some people like that, but I, I don't know. When I was at the nine, I, was, I went to Ukraine on holiday. <laughs> In November, on holiday to Ukraine, which is not what a lot of people do, but I was delighted. I loved it. It was beautiful. And I met all these activists and journalists. And I mean, it was really like I was working, to be honest, but it turned out came good years later. It came very handy that I did that trip. And I was thinking about writing a book, as I always am. Had a lot of different things going on, but it was it was pretty unhappy time to be honest. So then there was COVID, and <laughs> I gave in to John and said, "Yeah, I'll come back if I can," you know. And, um, John Johnson, at yeah, Radio Shetland, yeah, 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 yeah. He'd been suggesting that I apply for a job here for a while, and I hadn't been quite sure about it. But suddenly, again, sometimes you just you wake up and your whole compass is swung, and and you just you wake up with this feeling you're like, "Oh, I need to go home." Mm-hmm. And it's just clear and simple, and you're like, well, there's no arguing with this. Yeah, I just hoped that that feeling wouldn't go away, and it didn't. And I came back, and it was, apart from the endless struggle of finding somewhere to live in this housing crisis, I was very happy to be back. And you come back as a reporter, as you said, to BBC Radio Shetland, and you were, what, a year? Yeah, a year. Was it a year? A bit that, yeah. Yeah, and <clears throat> but the lure of Russia was still there. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It always was. It feels like a kind of speaking Russian, improving my Russian, learning about things and being there. It's like this thing, this almost physical thing that you that if I didn't do it, I would never. It would always be there, kind of pulling at me and making me cross and grumpy. And so, what did you apply for and succeed for <sighs> this time? I applied for everything. I was still applying for everything. This was before I came back to Shetland. Um, that I <laughs> went for the strangest interview of my life in this incredibly posh hotel in London, in Mayfair. And this is for the Alpha Fellowship, which is a kind of American-Russian collaboration with Alpha Bank. And it's been, it's been going for about 20 years. It's for foreigners from Germany, Britain and the US who can speak Russian, who know about Russia, to go and kind of become experts. Mm-hmm. She's prestigious, you know. Uh, and it's three three months of study and then six months of internship. There's a work experience somewhere. So a lot of them are journalists, but not all of them. And yeah, I went to this interview. Didn't think I got it at all. I mean, at all. I started <laughs> I started going on about the stories I wanted to do a bit like um, tax havens and dodgy Russian money. And then I was walking it and think, Jen, what? It's <laughs> a bank. Like, what the... <laughs> but they obviously liked that. So I got in. I also was offered a um, two year. Erasmus Mundus programme that would have been Ukraine, Russia and and a bit in Glasgow and as ever, and I was over the moon because I love academia and I missed it and I would have been writing and travelling but as ever you look at the fine print and it says oh your stipend your living costs will only be paid when you're abroad so for the nine months you're in Glasgow there's absolutely no money mm-hmm. you're like well again it's like so many of these schemes it seems like you can do it 
and then it means you actually just need rich parents at the end yeah. of the day. You still need that little bit. And if you don't have that little bit, you That's don't do it, it. Yeah. you know. And, and it was really good. They were like, oh, you were the best student that applied. Do you know, it was like, I was so made for that programme. Anyway, so I had the other option. But then there was COVID. So the alpha thing was deferred and deferred and deferred for a, for a long time. They didn't manage it very well, I don't think. They kind of kept us, kept us hanging on for ages. And But, you know, I was at the, at the wireless and having fun, and, which I loved and learned an awful lot. But it is essentially a desk job again. A lot of the time. Yeah, and that bit, I, yeah. I mean, if I'm behind a desk too much, I just get very grumpy and, like, it's no good for anybody <laughs> to put up with me. <laughs> no, I mean, the bits where you're kind of roaming about and speaking to folk and there's very few parts of the BBC where you get time to do investigations. And I think a huge credit to, to the team and John in, in particular for giving me the time to, to dig into stuff, you know, like the fires and the oil tankers, you know, things mm-hmm. that took a bit of time to get right. That was very satisfying to be able to do that kind of work. But still the lure of Russia, Jane, and off yeah, you get. <laughs> yeah, well, November it was, November last year, after a lot of studying Russian in my little, at my desk and trying to prepare for the kind of unknowable. It was hugely exciting to be finally, I mean, finally, got. I mean, 15 years or something, I've been waiting really to do this. So, yeah, off I went. And what a time to pack. Well, everybody said, so you're going at an interesting time. And I, you know, what I guess they meant it's going a bit iffy over there, isn't it? I don't think anybody imagined what would happen. Even being there, seeing the kind of clamour for war growing and the propaganda, I didn't think that they would bomb the city. I didn't think they would roll tanks over the border. But looking back, I mean, what did we think they were doing? They had 200,000 soldiers on the border and a whole columns of tanks. What do we think they were doing? Just showing off, do you know? I think we were just naive. Um, I was naive about Russians and Russia and there was conversation topics I would avoid because I just didn't want to have an argument, you know, mm-hmm. keep the peace. And I'm conflicted about it, to be honest, Jane. I'm not sure how I, how I feel about this country that I spent so long trying to go to. And, I mean, I happily would have gone to Ukraine instead. It wasn't so much, you know, I didn't like Moscow. I don't like big cities. And Kiev is beautiful much nicer place to be uh, but that's just the way the, the program took me so I traveled a pretty bit we were kind of stuck in Moscow without a passport for six weeks which was very hard because I was living next to a six-lane highway <laughs> the noise and like the heat inside and I just didn't sleep for a really long time and that was really hard we went to Suzdal which is a really bony pretty place and had the first experience of Russian banya which is amazing transformative like it oh I was following you like on social media and it looked like you were having a wonderful but very challenging time. And then, yeah. of course, it, it had changed and you had to get out of there because of the invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, I went to Murmansk in early February and it was already feeling then kind of like, how long are we going to be here? And I was really angry because I would, you know, we'd just finished this period of study that I go to this university classes, which was just, it wasn't university. It was just like being shouted at by propagandists, you know, mm-hmm. about how great Russia is. And, oh, you went to Iraq and all this kind of, no, I didn't. But, <laughs> you know, that kind of, that endless sort of just propaganda and Russian chauvinism being like thrust in your face all the time. So I was looking forward to getting away for that. And my plan was really just to like bum around Siberia. I'd like hand drawn all these maps <laughs> of all the major rivers of Siberia. And the places that I wanted to go to and just kind of hike and go canoeing and learn about these places and about their kind of 
like native people and their their beliefs and how they relate to the land and this is what I wanted to write about. I wasn't I had any intention of trying to do some kind of like journalism in Moscow because I discovered it was almost impossible for me to do that. You know, I wanted to work at Novik Gazeta where Anna Politkovska had been, but I mean, a Western journalist was just not good news for anybody at that point. Everybody was so scared of this foreign agent status. And, and everything was being shut down slowly or quickly anyway. And I was gutted at first when I thought about this, you know, really like there was a lot of self-pity going on. I was like, well, I waited so long and had all these plans. Um, but then as soon as that, I mean, as soon as it really happened, I just, I wanted to get out of that country because it made me sick to be around people who were quite happy with what was happening or denying what was happening. I was actually in Siberia, which is mad when I look back on it, like why they took us there. It was this programme trip. We had to go and we'd flown on the 24th of February, <laughs> getting off a plane after no sleep at all at six in the morning in the heart, I mean, the real depth of like on the border of Kazakhstan, China and surrounded by these mountains and it's freezing cold and I turn on my phone and this is my pals in Kharkiv saying, Jen, they're bombing us. Like they're, bo I mean, I just, I will never forget that moment. And, and all my colleagues were the same, you know, we, most of us had friends in, in Ukraine. And I said to the Russians in, in charge of the, of the trip, I said, look, we need to go straight back on that plane. People just quote Kremlin propaganda at you. They'd just quote the news and they'd say, this is only a small targeted military operation. I'm like, are you a zombie? Have you lost your mind? Do you want to watch this video of what they've just done in Kharkiv, you know? You're spending your whole time thinking about your friends, like, are they dead? Are they dead? Trying to only text them, like, once a day, you know, <laughs> neurotically. And surrounded by people who are in total denial. That was really hard. I got really, really angry, obviously. And I'm really upset. I mean, I think a bit of shock as well and a bit of... And, and just the kind of contrast of, like, we're staying at these luxury hotels, which is really not my bag, and getting driven around in Jeeps. and You know, it's not like... It's not travel. It's just, like, this nonsense... And not really able to take in like the scenery and, you know, just sitting having this like fancy dinner when all this is going on. It just felt, it just felt disgusting. Like you didn't want to eat anything. And I was saying like, I'm going to, we need to go back to Moscow. I just kept going on and on and mm -hmm. on. And on the last night we were in this palace casino hotel. Like, it's just disgusting place, you know, just utter, utter wealth. And Medvedev, the prime minister just said, made this comment about, oh, it's time to lock all the embassy doors. And I... Yeah, at that point, I kind of sent a message to one of the directors of the programme. I said, what the hell are we doing? Like, we need to leave. And two in the morning, we got the email from, from the States saying, yeah, you're, you're all in the next plane we can get you on out of Moscow. So, but we were in Siberia. <laughs> the plane was delayed. And, you know, it basically had, an, I think I had a, a few hours and then overnight and then onto the plane, like to pack and everything. What was your feelings at that time? Was it fear or was it anxiety? No, I was happy to be leaving I couldn't think of anything other than Ukraine. I couldn't think of anything other than my friends and what was being done to them. And I was, you know, what they might do, like the possibility of chemical attack or nuclear, again, thermobaric bombs. And just the, these things are just boiling away in your head. I just had to pack quickly. It's not it's not a hardship. Um, it was sad not to say goodbye to a friend mm -hmm. and boyfriend. And but, you know, it's nothing really in the grand scheme of things. I was very lucky. I mean, there's this. they paid for my flights. They paid, you know... It's not like I was kind of stuck or really struggling in a way that other people were. So, yeah, we left. I was happy to leave. Ended up in Vienna via Istanbul. I had some Ukrainian friends in Vienna, so got to see them and hug them and think about my next steps. And the next steps were going back, basically, to Ukraine? Well, I went to Romania. 
And that was the line for quite a while. I was like, I'm just in Romania. Yeah, but were you <laughs> kind of kidding yourself? No, I was... I was... <laughs> I do not think that it, that people should rush into war zones without experience and the and the you know the kit and the training. I think that's just reckless for everybody else around them. So I went to Romania because the story was there, partly you know on the border, and I went all the way down to the Danube. Somebody advised me to do this. I can't mind who it was, but thank you to them, whoever it was. And they said, don't go to the big border crossings. Like go down to Isatia, and it's the most beautiful place on the delta, the Danube River. And I mean, I knew nothing about this place, so I went there, met these volunteers. I was reporting like. Speak interviewing refugees basically every day, um, for the Sunday Post and for the for the BBC radio stuff, and I met these volunteers and I said, look, is there anywhere I could um I could maybe stay that's kind of cheap slash free, <laughs> and they said, uh, I've got a boat repair workshop on the outskirts of Tulcha, this port city, and um it's there's a bed upstairs and you can you can bide there and we'll lend you a car. I mean they're so kind. So kind, this guy Marianne. She's an absolute legend, and he at the time was just flat out to house people and get people. You know the 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 massive operation of volunteers and the Romanian state to an extent to greet these people coming off the boats was so huge and so impressive, um, and a beautiful thing to see. I think Romania should get a lot of credit as a poor place. It's not well off at all. So I was there for uh, yeah, a month and during this time I was trying kind of frantically to fin funding for the training that I needed and for the um, the kit and, you know, body armour. And of course I was very, like, apprehensive about doing this. Of course. It would be stupid if I wasn't. Kind of just about figured it all out in the end. How did you figure it out? What? <laughs> Is that the um, question I can ask you? Like Beg, beg borrow and steal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, friends, you know, Marianne helped me find a... Um, some body armour plates and a pretty flat jacket and the problem is with this stuff a lot of it's made for big men mm-hmm. and I am not so mm-hmm. it doesn't fit and that was a bit of a challenge but we got there you're a pity wife but you're a strong pity wife <laughs> <laughs> I am a strong pity wife yeah <laughs> the training was very difficult because I wasn't eligible for freelance funding to do the safety training which cost thousands of pounds you know to do the full kind of you know five days you get kidnapped and all this stuff I wasn't eligible because I hadn't been freelance for 18 continuous months Women in Journalism Scotland paid for a bit of my training. Um, I got some help for getting kit from the various places I was writing for. So, you know, I kind of, through bits and bobs and bits and bobs, I got there. And I'd gone into Ukraine a couple of times with the volunteers who were taking aid just into that bit near uh, Bessarabia. It's like this strip between Romania and Odessa. And then in early, oh gosh, in when? In April kind of mind uh, I went into Odessa and stayed there for three weeks and then sort of travelled on throughout Ukraine for seven weeks in total yeah so although the Russian dream had come to an end if you like I don't know kind of it's right to say you were fortunate to be in the right place at the right time as far as being a journalist is concerned but you kind of were and you were there to get the story and to get the story a real folk if you like I was very fortunate I was very fortunate. I've been thinking about this a lot. I mean, not just to be... I mean, you know, it was it was tricky to get there and it took a bit of effort. But, yeah, I was very fortunate. The friends that I had met in 2018 when I was in Ukraine were all kind of there and volunteering and helped me out a lot. So I was all... Wherever I went, there would be a friend of a friend, you know. Because I was doing it all, like, on my own, night train, rucksack. And there's benefits to doing to doing it like that, you know. You get to meet a lot of normal folk and have conversations that kind of tell you a lot about what people are thinking and what's going on in the country and I, I, I like doing it like that but it is kind of exhausting 
Um, but yeah. Exhausting, and like you said, had nobody got your back? Was it ever a big concern for you, like a, a wife travelling on your own in a foreign country that there was just so much happening in? When you say it like that, I'm like, yeah, it should have been. <laughs> <laughs> um, not really. I keep saying this. I'm not. I'm not particularly brave. Like I, I never go to the dentist because I'm. I'm really fair, and I'm fair to like swimming pools. Do you know? <laughs> um, but you, you make a constant kind of risk analysis, don't you? And your 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 risk balance changes. And like, once you're in Odessa, there's rockets going. There's air raid sirens, but they're you know you're in a bit where it's very unlikely to be bombed. So you go out and you wear your jacket, your flak jacket. But you know, you, you you change your risk assessment all the time, I suppose. And Outside Kharkiv, the villages, I went to Kharkiv, which is like my favourite city and I have a lot of friends there, and just, but it's been so badly bombed and like, when I first got there it was like empty, we're going down the big famous street and kind of, there was no traffic, it's like a huge highway, it's huge big squares, like very Soviet style, massive, and just the silence, like so eerie. Anyway, outside Kharkiv, you know, there was still a lot of battles going and I was still kind of, it was noisy put it that way I wasn't anywhere that there was like a lot of incoming but there was outgoing and it's it's noisy and it didn't phase me hugely and that's not because I'm yeah because I'm very brave it's just the way that I'm made I suppose uh over the couple of months that you were there Jane what's the main things that that you would take away for it the fact that you came that you've met and the, the situations that that you were involved in it's very hard to sum it up I mean, people are the same everywhere, you know? People are just mostly trying to do their best, mostly good, usually a bit scared. <laughs> and I take great comfort in this, you know? What's been done to Ukraine and the people there, it's very hard not to feel, like, personally involved in it, and I have to remind myself that it's not my country. It's not. They're extraordinary people, the people that I met. Uh, especially my friends, and they're of this generation, like the Maidan generation, that, you know, they ousted the old corrupt Soviet grey man eight years ago, and they tried to build a new progressive European decent country, and that's partly why Putin's trying to wipe them off the map. How dare Ukraine be setting an example, you know, with free and fair elections and having different president? I mean, <laughs> how dare they? So... Yeah, what did I learn? Courage and strength and... Yeah. Tell me a couple of stories about some of the folk that you met. So, I have a friend, Ivana, who I hugely admire. She's very cool, do you know what I mean? We were talking a lot about how wartime kind of changes everything and she started wearing red lipstick, which she'd never usually done, and she's got her leather jacket on and her... <laughs> she's just very cool. And she's been working flat out for years to support the army because... And we find that weird. We find that kind of like, oh, what, the army? I mean, that's a bit, do you want to buy a gun, really? But Ukraine was under attack. They hardly had any army. It was the volunteer militias. Even if she didn't like them, she was having to fundraise for them. And she was doing that because it's an existential threat to your country. And I don't think we can understand that because we've been very safe for a very long time. But she has such a philosophical view on things. And... Her life has changed so much and she's just kind of going with it and doing what she can and stepping back when she needs to and sitting in nature when she needs to and just taking it like one day at a time because there is no end in sight with this. Like it's not like it stops. It's not like Harkiv could be safe because it's so close to the border. 
So to keep your spirits up like that, when people you know are dying, you know, for, for Kharkiv people as well, it's like the territorial army is defending the city. They've got hardly any kit. They don't have enough stuff. And it's like, it's their family that are in the territorial defence. It's their, like, mums and dads and brothers and sisters. So when you're, like, raising money to try and buy, like, three bulletproof vests or something, it's like to stop your brother getting shot. I mean, that... <laughs> you can't overstate that. And some of the refugees that you met, what, what stayed with you? Oh, these lovely three... A lot of the Odessans are just, they're so stylish, these women, Jane, these women with their berries and their lovely <laughs> scarves and, and there's me, <laughs> like in my lumpy jumper. And No, they're, they are very, very proud and very stylish and very angry. Oh, so angry. I mean, the language is brilliant. Swearing in Russian is great fun, but yeah, the language these people would have when they were talking about Putin. And, you know, you're trying to get them to talk about, like, all oh, the terrible things that have happened to them because that's your newspaper copy. But all they want to do is just rant about, about what a pig Putin is and, and who is he protecting us from. And, <laughs> you know, and these three women stuck with me because they, they just made me laugh so much. And I was like, how? And all they had is these suitcases. And I can't even imagine what that's like. And it was freezing and it was cold and they didn't know where they were going. And they've never been to Romania. And they were laughing. I'm like... How are, you, how are you doing this? And I mind one of my one of my editors was like, Jen, your pictures, they're great, but, you know, they're all smiling and, and it doesn't really fit, you know, uh, with the stories that you're telling. And I'm like, dude, what can I say? They're, they're Ukrainians. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they weren't all smiling. And part of the reason I'm not a photojournalist is I, I can't put my camera in people's faces when they're crying. I can't do it. That's fine. It's just not, not me. Yeah, that really stuck with me. And the fact that a lot of people would cry, not when they were speaking about what had happened and the houses that had left and all this, but when they would speak about the reception that they had got for Romanians, mm -hmm. you know, being greeted with all this, like, the help kindness. and can sandwiches mm -hmm. and cups of tea and help with the dogs and, you know, yeah, because they didn't know. Ukraine and Romania don't have the best of histories together, you know? So they were like, I mean, you're really just going into the total unknown. You might be despised, you have no idea. And that was what made them cry, was all this kindness they were getting. And that, and that would really get to me, actually, you know, as well, because I'm human as well. It's, yeah, it's yeah. an emotional place to be. How do you control your emotions, your emotions, when you're reporting on something like that? Because, I mean, it's hugely different in one sense for covering a patch like Shetland to going into a war zone, essentially. It's not that different. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's the job. When I'm working, I'm very, that's that I'm working, and I don't get particularly kind of overwhelmed. And and then you have to process things later on, and you have to sit down and have a have a greet. Mm -hmm. It's important to do that because it's overwhelming, and sometimes it'll completely just catch you unawares. Like I I mind the there was a Ukraine cast I was listening to, and I think there's probably a lot of people had to stop the car and sit and greet at this, and it was a recording of a man who'd. Like his whole family had been killed and, and it was his daughter and her pity lass. And he's sobbing in Russian. He says, um, oh, my darlings, I failed to protect you. And it, oh, God. And I just had to stop the car and just cry because that man's pain is overwhelming and, and it's so unfair. And yeah, so things get to you, of course, and, and you have to speak about them and deal with them. And, and I saw some horrible things and you can dwell in it or you can not, frankly. Uh, that sounds very kind of tough but it's it's not it's um you don't have to keep thinking about that that dead body or that whatever you saw you don't have to keep thinking about it you did your job and you reported on it and then you can let it go what made you decide to come back home it was really hot 
No, that's too superficial. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm look, not believing that. Look, okay. Um, <laughs> I was really tired. I was really exhausted. I had to admit, I was really exhausted. I'd kind of knocked my ear a bit with a with a bit of a loud artillery thing, and um, I had a mosquito bite, so my eye was all swollen. And I was like, "Man, I'm kind of falling apart at the seams here." I was just knackered, and I was I was really homesick. Like I wanted to go home. Um, you also lost a lot of weight, if I may say so, fair say, mm, you last. Yeah. It's obviously, like, physically turned a bit of a toll on you. I, I guess so, but I'm very bad at being able to see when that's, like, far of my limits. It's very hard. I have to actually, like, brack myself a bit until I can see, which is why I love doing weightlifting. <laughs> like, how much can I pick up today? The night train stuff was really hard to get. I mean, I'm like, oh, I love trains and I can speak to everybody, but it's grueling. I mean, it was so hot and you're like crammed in with all these folk. And I had so much, like I had body armour and that was really, maybe 16 kilos, really heavy. And the helmet and the backpack. And I was trying, it was like one night, it was dark. I was in a, I didn't even mind which station it was. And there's like a blackout in all the stations. And I was climbing up with all this on my back on the metal vertical ladder to get into the train carriage. And again, I'm on my own, there's nobody to help me. And I'm doing my usual thing of like, I can do this, I don't need anyone. And suddenly there's something in my head was like, nope. <laughs> and it was like something snapping, being like, that's enough, that's enough, you're too tired. And I thought, oh God, I'm going to be stuck in this ladder. Like, <laughs> halfway up, I just kind of move. <laughs> but yeah, I was getting really knackered. And I'm honestly not being flippant when I say it was like high 20s, 30 degrees, and I kinda, I kind of deal with heat. You can run away from the dangerous bits and, and loud noises, but you like heat. It just I can't regulate my temperature, so I get really dizzy and like yeah, it's just not it's not for me. Minus twenty six was fine. I was camping in minus twenty six in Russia. That was that was absolutely fine. But um, thirty degrees, a lot harder. And yeah, and I want to see my family and mm-hmm. just come home for a start. Yeah. So we're sitting here. Looking out at this lovely view that you have here um, in, in the house that you're in, what next for you, Jane? I'm very, <laughs> I'm very torn, and I'm very. Um, there's so much I want to do. There's there's just not enough life, is there, for everything that you want to do? I I love writing, and I love. I want to write a book or many books. If, have you been commissioned to write a book? Yeah. Well, I have a, an agent and we're speaking about, like, yeah, what publishers to go to. And, and it'll be a book about the time that I spent in, in Russia and Ukraine. Uh, there's a lot of other things I would like to write about. I mean, essentially, also, I love being a kind of freelance reporter writing about primarily environment stuff and mm. land and people. And, yeah, this is what kind of fires me up. I... Because you were in the place that you were at the time that you were, your profile is much higher as a freelance journalist now in a funny sort of a way. That's true. I churned out quite an extraordinary amount of work when I was there. You did, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I was lucky. I was really lucky with that. And lucky to have all the Russian language skills. That, I mean, it's not perfect, but I could get by interviewing folk. And, and that made all that kind of possible, you know. So it's like all of these things were leading to... Yeah. to place and yeah, I, I spent a lot of time being kind of frustrated with life and feeling like I wasn't getting where I wanted to be but you you do you do get there in the end I could have been braver in the past and taken leaps I think instead of waiting for it to come together but yeah so I'm going to go back to Ukraine maybe in the autumn freelance I expect so I, I mean <laughs> it's obviously if I could get a, a correspondent job that was kind of my dream since I was you know, in, in high school, but 
I love the freedom to, especially when you're kind of, you want to do some more like, uh, use the word intellectual, you know, you want to do some deeper writing and a bit more research and to spend the day being like, well, I'm just going to read about Kharkiv in the 1920s today because, because I can, because it's, because it is making my little neurons fire off together. Like I want to learn everything all at once and read all of the books so that I can, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when I was period, I mind, I used to have this like fantasy that you could stop, you could go and like sit in a cloud and stop time and then you could read everything. And I still basically, that's how I feel. Um, so, yeah, that kind of freedom that you have for freelancing, just to go off on an avenue that interests you, is is wonderful. And I'd find it hard to give that up. Yeah, it, it is. A freelance job does give you that sort of freedom, but you have to make money. And that's like central to a lot of the things you tell me today, is that lack of, of money. So, yeah, yeah how... I don't want to go back to... I, w- I will not go back to that constant worry. Mm-hmm. No. Um, and, you know, the housing crisis makes things for a lot of people a lot more crunchy and decisions are a lot more difficult. And I got very lucky finding somewhere to rent through someone that I knew. And other th- without that, I would have been stuck in, like, you know, Airbnbs that were empty over winter and then you had to leave and you had to leave and you had to leave. And it's just like where are we actually meant to go I, <laughs> it's really actually scary uh, so that's always a consideration like what, in the future if you're, if you're going to do jobs that don't earn you very much money that becomes a, a real problem you know so yes I'm thinking about lots of different avenues that life could go down and I'm not really sure at the moment which one it'll be I didn't want to abide in Edinburgh, Glasgow I'm very happy here this is where I'm meant to be. It's my natural habitat. But it's not exactly an easy place to be a foreign correspondent because <laughs> kind of if you live in London, you can kind of just nip home like on a plane or something. Obviously, the hardest part of the whole journey from Odessa, which included like ferries and across the Danube and buses and trains, the most difficult bit was just trying to get on the North Link. <laughs> trying to book a place, this place in the North Link with a car. Like, I was, I was, and I got there in the end. because they. But yeah, I mean... It's not. It's not like you can nip in and out, and that kind of limits your. But for the meantime, you're content. Reception and writing your book. Content <laughs> is not a word associated with me. <laughs> okay, now I was thinking about a bit of a leap there, Jane. Uh, I. I mean. I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot that I love about being home, and but there's a lot that, to be honest, I find difficult because. And I always kind of knew I was going to be like this, uh, one of those kind of cliched correspondent things of like, it's much easier being on the road because all you have to think about is like, have you washed your five pairs of pants and have you packed your rucksack for the 10 millionth time and where are you going next? And have you got a story to do? Yes, good, okay. Eat some pot noodles, off you go. And that's that, you can just keep going like that for a long time. And then you have to come back and be like, oh, normal life, oh my God. (laughs) There's like bills and MOTs and stuff you know you feel like you have a lot of stuff and I don't really but you feel kind of and does normal life feel good or does it feel trivial after being in Ukraine it definitely doesn't feel trivial but of course it's different of course it's different I'm so lucky I feel grateful all of the time all of the time in recent years um, for where I come from in particular and the folk I come from and the people in my life and the opportunities that I've fought for and got, I'm very, very, very lucky. Mm-hmm.